0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, maybe you've heard the old joke about the genie at the church staff meeting. You know, the genie pops out of the lamp and says, I'll give you each a wish. And the worship director says, "Well, I'd sure love to be on a canal in Venice right now. Poof, there he goes. And the... Outreach director says, I would love to be under a palm tree on a sunny beach in Tahiti right now. Poof, there he goes. And then the pastor said, I would love to have both of those back here at their desks right now. Poof, poof, there they, go, there they are. And if you're paying attention tonight, I know you've noticed that um, the preacher is supposed to be Ken Kirstad and uh, not me. And I can see the disappointment in your faces already. Um, But actually, I got a call uh, yesterday. Ken had to suddenly get on a plane and fly uh, to be with his kids. And a little bit of a family struggle there. We'll pray for them during our our family time. I've gotten a report later in the day today. Things are going well. Um, But Ken asked me if I would uh, step in and uh, preach the sermon sort of with him. Because he had written a wonderful manuscript. It's a fantastic reflection on this passage that uh, Lewis just read for us, and it fits right in with our series here, Hero of Our Hope. So basically, this is a bit of a collaboration between Ken and me. The big idea is really Ken's, uh, but the big mouth is mine. So that's my gift to you. Uh, But the question today is, what is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? Is there? Is there one? Well... Uh, Superman started out here on this planet, as you know, as Clark Kent, the little boy raised in Kansas by a regular family. And he had to discover over time who he really was. And there's a scene uh, where Clark's father, Jonathan, is breaking the news to him that he's not an ordinary boy. He's 13 years old. And uh, Jonathan shows his son a key, and he says, This was in the chamber with you. We took it to a metallurgist at Kansas State. He said, whatever it was made from didn't even even exist on the periodic table. It's another way of saying that it's not from this world, Clark, and neither are you. You're the answer, son. You're the answer to, are we alone in the universe? The boy, Clark Kent, said, I don't want to be. His dad said, and I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. But you're not just anyone, Clark. And I have to believe that you were you were sent here for a reason. All these changes that you're going through, one day, one day, you're going to think of them as a blessing. And when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. Clark says, can't I just keep pretending I'm your son? Tears begin to come to his father's eyes. He embraces him. He says, you are my son. But somewhere out there, you, you have another father too, who gave you another name, and he sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. I share that story with you because I think that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has said something very similar to you and to me. He said, you have a father out there, a different father than your immediate one. You have been given a new name, and you have been sent to this planet for a reason. There's a purpose for your life. We've been discovering in this series that you only get a full sense of our hope, Christian hope, if you get a full sense of the Bible story, you know, the whole Bible, from Genesis to maps. The four major arcs in this story are creation, redemption, mission, and glory. We've seen already that God made you. He's our maker. God rescued you. He's our rescuer. And today we see that God in Jesus Christ is our king, and he has a mission for our lives. This theme, God is king, is all the way through the Bible, like all these other great themes. We see it at the beginning, God creates by divine fiat as though he were a sovereign Lord. Let there be light, he says. At the end of the story, there's a throne room, and on the throne, there's a, a crucified lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In between there, God calls into being a people. First, Israel. He makes a treaty with them, like a king would make a treaty with a a vassal king. He wants to be their king. Their purpose is to show forth his goodness in all creation, to bless all the families of the earth. And then, again, when Jesus comes, he will call into existence a, a new Israel, the church. And he comes at the center of this great story with this message. It's about a kingdom, right? In all the gospels, his message again and again is, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. His point is, my rule has come. It's beginning, even now. And I invite you to step into it and to live with it. Well, the Apostle Paul understands this. And in the language in which Lewis just read in Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes this privilege that we have as being citizens of heaven. And it defines the purpose of our lives. So let's open up our Bibles again and have a look at this. If you put it away, turn back, please, to Philippians 3, verses 17 through uh, following. That's on page 955. And as Ken and I discuss this with you, uh, we want to talk to you about three things. Half-truths, retired soldiers, and full implications. So first, let's begin with half-truths. This is a season of half-truths. Ken reminds us this. He writes, I have a confession to make. I am a political junkie. I voraciously devour political news like an addict. This is how bad it is. I even get up most Sundays at 6 a.m. to watch Meet the Press. Yeah, it's serious. I'm fascinated with politics, transfixed really. It's one of my numerous afflictions. As I've been following the debates and listening to the political discourse, it has occurred to me that the whole political enterprise is built on the proliferation of partial truths. Politicians are masters of half-truths, those depictions of reality that are fundamentally true, but don't tell the whole story. Now, I'm not sure Ken is fair to all politicians, and yet it is true that both sides of this political race have accused the other of using half truths. It seems to be cutting across the partisan spectrum. And uh, you can think of your own examples there, but the the reason it's important is that sometimes when we think of the faith in Jesus, we also hold to half-truths. They're true, but just not true enough to capture the whole. The particular half-truth that I want to reflect on with you this evening is salvation as escapism. Escapism. As a student, I came to faith in Jesus Christ a couple of years before being in college. And during my college years, I ended up kind of living like the prodigal in the distant country. And, uh, I was, I would consider myself a believer. Um, and yet really what had happened is I had trusted Jesus with my eternal life, but not with my life right here. I had trusted him with the future, all of eternities. You'd think that'd be like a bigger deal to trust him with, but I, I couldn't trust him with today. I was living with a half-truth gospel. Ken would call this the ticket to heaven theology. He writes, there's a partial truth gospel that is dominant and pers- per- persuasive in Western Christianity. Its power and danger Lie in the fact that it is a salvation story that is essentially true, monumentally true, but it's a lesser story, a reduced gospel story. And the danger of adopting this as the whole story is that the life of a believer is essentially settled, resolved at the decisive moment of conversion. Once the eternal destination of our soul is determined, then the rest of life is reduced into the work of sin management. And personal spirituality focused on, quote, our personal relationship with God. This is a severe reduction of what salvation is about. The inadequacy of this true but incomplete story is that there is no great task. There's no calling to our culture. No mission to meaningfully engage the world in which we live. You see, it is life before death. Listen to this. This is dense, but great. You see, he writes, it is life before death that is tragically threatened by the idea that salvation is merely fulfilled in life after death. If you only believe that Jesus came to give you life after death, the casualty is life before death. You have no mission. You have no purpose that comes from Jesus. This is ironic because Jesus isn't just the, the uh, isn't just the example, nor is he just the springboard into eternity. Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever lived. Jesus comes to show us the way of life itself and to invite us to walk it. Half truths. Let's move secondly to retired soldiers. We talk about retired soldiers because Philippi was a special place in the Roman Empire. It was created as a city for retired soldiers. There'd been a great battle. I'll tell you more about it in a moment, but just imagine what these soldiers do for the rest of their lives. Do they just sit back and put their feet up on a coffee table and tell stories of the great battle in the past and basically wait to die? We're told, aren't we, that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. And my concern is that some followers of Jesus Christ do the same. Philippi was a colony founded by and for Roman soldiers. If we read this text, which is written to Philippians, with the ticket-to-heaven narrative, we can find confirmation of the half-truth. After all, Paul uh, critiques uh, toxic culture. He describes different destinations, apparently. One is destruction, the other is heaven. Isn't he just saying that the purpose of life is to get out of this place and into someplace nice? No. If that were the case, Ken writes, the life lesson conveyed here would be just to hold on for dear life. We're just passing through this life till we can get to our true home. Just stand firm, hang in till the end of this life, and God sends his heavenly lifeboat to take you to a better place. This is a fatal misunderstanding of the text, a total misread. This interpretation misses or disregards the unique cultural and historical context in which Paul is writing this letter. This is a letter to the Philippians, after all. And Philippi is a unique place. And to overlook the uniqueness of Philippi is to miss the message of this passage. Philippi was a new colony. Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, here's the backstory. In 42 BC, there was a huge battle. You remember the story. Julius Caesar, the first great emperor of Philippi, was murdered by, does anyone remember? Brutus and Cassius, excellent. Brutus and Cassius um, take to the battlefield. They want power. They're fought by two other, uh, for extra credit, can you name the other two generals who oppose them? It's Mark Antony and Octavius, who would later become Augustus. So they have these four generals in a massive civil war to to fight over the future of the Roman Empire. Well, Antony and Octavian, they win. After the war, the two victorious generals, Anthony and Octavian, had found themselves with a lot of soldiers in northern Greece, which is where Philippi is, with nothing more to do. They didn't want to bring them all back to Rome because, you know, generally the political capital of the empire is not a strategic place for a bunch of idle yet lethally capable soldiers to hang out in. So land was given them in and around Philippi to occupy and settle as a Roman colony. It's not going to be a pagan city. It's going to be a Roman city because these are Roman soldiers who deserve the honor. It's a unique city among all the cities in northern Greece, uh, Philippi. Over time, there were other military campaigns that left idle soldiers far from Rome, and Philippi became a kind of magnet city for many other military veterans and their families. So by the time Paul ends up in Philippi. It's about 100 years later. This Greek city had been substantively colonized by Rome and had taken on the character of Roman life, culturally, civically, socially, architecturally. It was like a little Rome. This is amazing. This Roman colony-shaped reality of Philippian life is what Paul has in mind when he writes, we are citizens of heaven. As though a Philippian could say, we are citizens of Rome by virtue of our life here and the privileges of Philippi. But if someone in Philippi had said, we are citizens of Rome, they certainly wouldn't mean so. We're looking forward to going to live there. That's the misread. Being a colony works the other way around. The last thing the emperors in Rome wanted was a whole lot of colonists coming back to Rome. No, the task of Roman citizens in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece. To expand Roman influence there. Catch this. That the kingdom of Caesar would be in Philippi as it is in Rome. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember the prayer of our Lord? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not trying to get earthlings into heaven. He's trying to get the heavenly culture into earth. That's what you pray for when you pray the Lord's Prayer. And it begins to describe our mission. See, Jesus is king. That's what we're learning tonight. If you want to think of it in superhero terms, imagine Jesus taking on this grand civil war that spans the whole cosmos, this cosmic civil war that's tearing the creation apart. Jesus, through his death on the cross and resurrection, achieves a grand victory over the forces of sin and darkness and death. Having won this battle, he settles his followers as decommissioned combatants who no longer take up the sword. After all, the swords are beaten into plowshares, the prophet tells us by Jesus. But he settles us as privileged citizens of heaven here on earth, here and there and here and there and here and there. So that we can say today we're called as heavenly citizens to bring the, uh, the, the culture, the life, the authority, of our great king and the heavenly way into Seattle. That is the picture Paul has in mind in verses 20 and 21. This is a much bigger salvation story than the ticket to heaven story. This bigger story is rooted in the new creation story of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a hinge point of human history. Jesus' physical, material, bodily resurrection is God's initial heaven-to-earth invasion, his down payment on a restored future, a complete restoration of space, time, and matter. The seemingly improbable good news fulfilled in the life of Jesus is that the arc of human history is moving toward the fullness of time where heaven and earth will be joined together, and God will restore all things. Jesus is one, and we... Are called to live in a colony of heaven. I wondered this as a new believer. If his goal was just to get me to heaven, like everybody seemed to be saying, what's the next 60 years of my life supposed to be? I mean, if that's what you hear when you're young, you think, well, I gotta just put my feet up on the coffee table and wait around until I die, do whatever I want, I suppose. No. He leaves you here for a purpose, and that is to be a witness for him so that others might know him. So, retired generals, soldiers, let's move thirdly to full implications. I want to share with you the implications by uh, articulating three half-truths and then filling them out. The first half-truth is that God gets you to heaven. Yes, he does. If you believe in Jesus, he will do that. But that's not all he's here to do. God gets heaven to and through you. That's the full truth. God gets heaven to and through you. Notice verse 17, friends, where Paul says, Join in imitating me. If you were with us last week, you You heard me talk about three with verbs. These were compound words with the Greek word for with at the front. There's a fourth one here that he uses. And Paul's not really saying imitate me with that with verb. He's saying join me in imitating, join with me in imitating Jesus. Jesus is the pattern for our lives. That is to say, Jesus has a new way of life for us to live. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most uh, poignant summary of that pattern. Ken writes, how many of you have been to Baskin-Robbins? Yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, you remember the pink spoons? Uh, you know the dilemma. With 31 flavors, it's so difficult to make the right choice without testing a flavor or two or five. The pink spoons are the means of delivering a, quote, foretaste to give a meaningful hint at the goodness that follows. And in the kingdom of kingdom coming of the resurrected Jesus, our lives are to be like pink spoons. See this? Offering foretastes of what abundant life might be about. Offering to whom? Offering to our neighbors. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. A life of abundance, of flourishing, of thriving, is the gift that Jesus seeks to give everyone, not just those of us in this room. For the Christian, if there is a possibility for human flourishing in a world like ours, it begins when God's world of love becomes flesh in us is embodied in us, is enacted in us, is resurrected in us. Love. That's our first full truth. God gets heaven to and through you. That's our first implication. The second one uh, starts off with this half-truth. Secondly, God calls us to conflict. Yes, there's some truth to that. And yet it's not true enough. Because I think it's better to say God calls us to unleash the power of grace. Grace. That's a full truth. Notice in verse 21 that the agent of this transformation described so beautifully by Paul is not Paul, it's not the Philippians, it's not the followers of Jesus, but it is God himself. Verse 21 says, he will transform the body of our humiliation. This is grace and it is his activity and not yours or mine. There's a power to grace that can reach into, and I love this part of the passage, our humiliation. And take our humiliation, the very raw material of God's kingdom work, starts with our brokenness, our humiliation. And he can transform that into the body of his glory. That's grace. There's rich power to it. So there is a confrontation here. Paul will speak of enemies, uh, but not enemies of Christ. Notice verse 18. Many live as enemies of Not of Christ, but of the cross of Christ. I think you might even be speaking to people who think they're believers. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ because they cannot tolerate grace. They cannot tolerate forgiveness. This, friends, I think is where the Paris Eight went tragically wrong. I think this group of eight people looked around them. They saw a world that isn't the way it should be or wasn't, isn't the way that they want it to be. And they tried to dedicate their lives to making the world a better place, but they took up arms. They didn't take the cross. They took up swords. And in destroying their own lives and destroying other people's lives, unfortunately, they became agents of darkness, complicit with the powers of evil. This is not the way for the followers of Jesus Christ. It is not to confront force with force, but as Jesus, to make ourselves servants, to follow him and his cross, to love, to forgive. To live lives of powerful grace. Ken says we're called to love the ones we're with. It is in those relational spaces in the daily work we're given, in the spheres of influence we operate in, where we live as citizens of heaven. It's through the joys, sufferings, hopes, disappointments, concerns, desires, and worries of the folk we journey with each day where we find our authenticity as a community of believers. It is in these daily relationships with family, neighbor, coworker, roommate, where we discover and grow our capacities for forgiveness and humility, where we practice kindness and generosity, where we grow in patience and wisdom and become clothed in compassion, gentleness, and joy. It is in the fertile garden of everyday life where the fruits of the Spirit are planted and cultivated and embodied in real life. And that is transformational and countercultural. That's the life of heaven functioning in your daily life. God calls us to unleash the power of grace. The third half-truth is this. God gives you a purpose. seems like I'm arguing for that, and uh, Ken and I are, and yet there's more because God gives not just you as an individual purpose. Here's the full truth. God gives us a shared purpose. The key word in this passage is in verse 20 where it's uh, where we read, Our citizenship is heaven. This is who we are. If you're like me, then you have a little footnote on the word citizenship that takes you to the bottom of the page where you see that this could also be translated commonwealth. The word in the Greek is related to the word that we use in English for politics. Polis is the root here. Paul is saying God has called you and created you as a new politic, body politic, as a new society, as a new commonwealth, as a community, and it's as you interact with one another that a new world order comes into visibility within this broken world order, an or, a world that is ordered around grace, the cross, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Ken describes this, he thinks the model of this, and I agree with him, is to be found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and You can look at it later if you choose. But in Acts 2, we discover the first Christian community. And there are three observable dynamics of their life. Number first, number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, prayer, and breaking of the bread. In other words, they invested in a rhythm of shared spiritual life. That's number one. Number two, they shared together in community. They lived as if they were family, sharing time and resources. And number three, they blessed people. They generously gave to others from the resources of their shared life. These three dynamics, and I love the way Ken puts this into words. He says these three dynamics, first of all, the spiritual life of becoming, the family life of belonging, and the community life of blessing seem to capture the key rhythms of the early Jesus communities. Our friend Hugh Halter suggests that these same three dynamics of the early church are the core rhythms of what is called an incarnational community, or what Paul and Philippians would call a community of heaven citizens. And Hugh is one of numerous missional leaders who is calling the church to revision ourselves and to engage our culture with these three rhythms of community life, Again, the becoming space of communion with Jesus, where together we open our lives to growing relationship with God through shaping influences of engaging God's word, prayer, and the sacraments. Secondly, the belonging space of inclusive community, where we intentionally enter into hospitable places with our neighbors and share life together as family. And third, the blessing space, where we share our time and resources together in meeting practical needs as we encounter them, the needs of our neighbors. Jesus is our king, and if Jesus is our king, then you and I do have a purpose and heavenly power to fulfill it. So we're not so different from Clark Kent in that sense. I think you could hear these words as though they were directed to you from God. Let me read them again. You are my daughter. You are my son. But somewhere out there, you have another father too, who gave you another name, and he sent you here for a reason. Ken asked us to imagine what it might look like in the life of this church if we more and more became a congregation of networked incarnational communities, forming in the neighborhoods or relational networks all over Seattle and Puget Sound and embarking together to live out these three citizen-of-heaven dynamics of becoming, belonging, and blessing right where God has us. What an adventure. What an adventure that would be. So if you're in a small group, Here are two questions for you this week. If you're not in a small group, I would invite you to get in one. Start one. Find one. And then ask these two questions. First of all, what is heaven like? When Jesus says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how is God's will done in heaven? Just use your imagination. And then ask yourself the second question, how can our neighbors begin to experience those realities in us here today? Let's close with the words from Ephesians 2 as... Uh, translated by Eugene Peterson in the message. Here we read, now God is, uh, God has us right where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he's gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be about the business of doing. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the words of our Savior Jesus echo in this room tonight. For it was he who said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And if we are to be to do, the be tonight is to recognize we are citizens of heaven. Would you help us to see that? And the do is to simply live with the power of heaven in our midst. Would you give us the power of your Holy Spirit and the boldness to live in that way? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.